This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. is Brooke Moen. She's an acupuncturist practicing up in Burlington, right? That's right. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Antonio. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm okay. It's nice to talk to you. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time. <laughs> a lot has happened. A lot has happened. I was looking and thinking the last time we talked was March 2017. Is that right? I'm going to take your word for it. So that's four years ago. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. <laughs> Time is a weird thing. It is a very weird thing. 
is it even a thing? Yeah. <laughs> it's a construct. Yeah. Good one, though. A very uh, seductive one. Yeah, it's really convincing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least from our perspective. That's right. I'm not sure about any other perspectives. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be ruling our lives. It does. Although, you know, now that I think about it, I've had other perspectives where, where time didn't seem to enter into the picture. I think you're lucky if you can have that in your life, you know? Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. It's, it's very liberating. It is. So, I don't know if we should go over the past four years, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, what would you most like to talk about or what thing what what give me a, a like a laundry list of things that okay <laughs> of possibilities throughout everything that's on your mind and and that you have some interest in talking about and that'll give me something to to work with great so i started thinking about the fact that that's the last time we talked and i thought you know since then there's two major health things that have happened both personally and globally, which is my own cancer and then COVID. And, you know, the threads that are interesting to me about both of those experiences personally and collectively are a couple things and they kind of tie into, you know, this view I briefly mentioned to you over email, which is the Chinese cosmology version of things, which is based on cycles of time. And that's so much of what we learned last year in the rat year, <laughs> which was that we are part of a social body, that it's not just me in the world, but there's a social body going on here. And it's kind of more important than ever to understand that. And I think that's so much of what I gleaned from cancer as well, is this idea of not being exempt from the way that things are and how we think about that and participate in that is really informative about what health and harmony are. And, you know, how do we think about, I mean, going from your email about your TCM friend who sounds like has had some things to say about COVID and vaccines and all that. How do we think about these big sort of sweeping health things? How do we treat them? And I'm always coming from like, well, we start, we start with view. What's our view, first of all? And if we're not coming from a Western savior, heroic point of view, then, then how are we thinking about it? How are we approaching it? And I always go back to my Taoist teacher, who I learned so much of my perspective from. If death isn't an accident, if it's an inevitability, if it's the truest thing after birth, <laughs> then how do we approach disease and health and how do we do this in a balanced way and it makes me think of these big social issues of choosing harmony over aggression and how we've had such a momentum in the west of aggression and there seems to be a real passion and desire to change that and how do we how do we think about that and how do we do that? And I'm also thinking about a book that I finished recently. I should have sent this to you. Energy Medicine by Jill Blakeway. Are you familiar with that book? 
No. I've read some other books on energy medicine, but uh, not that one. So she is a British woman who is an acupuncturist, and she runs a very busy, successful clinic in New York City based on women's health and fertility. But she wrote this book, and I read it on the recommendation of a friend as I was putting a introduction to Chinese medicine class together this winter. And she does this great job of bringing Eastern philosophy and Western medicine and the idea of energy and movement being as fundamental and important to how things work as matter and what we know from traditions like Chinese medicine about that and then how we can apply it to modern health and healing. And I've just finished it and I've just been thinking a lot about some of the wisdom she has to offer in that book. In terms of bringing together research and philosophy, because both are important, and that kind of brings me back to the whole like cancer and COVID thing. I had a lot to navigate with all of the decisions around treatment for cancer, kind of pulling from both of those realms. And then I've been thinking so much about that again with COVID. What is it actually? Do we get vaccinated? Do we not? You know, How do we think about all of that? And like I said, you an email. That all can be very controversial, but I love to kind of pull it out of the political realm and just think about it from a human and neutral and gathering information standpoint. So I think that is my dump. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's a great range of things, and they're all interrelated in various different ways. So where do you think we should start? Well, the first thing you brought up was... COVID and cancer and and the interrelation between our individual perspectives and the collective perspective or the mm-hmm. way our the way our individual perspectives are influenced and are affected by perhaps what you might call the collective consensus about reality or about these different issues and mm-hmm. both COVID and cancer have very very powerful collective consensus narratives in our culture. Mm-hmm. Was that what you were alluding to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And of course, those of us on the alternative edge of perspectives have to deal with the tension between the collective unquestioned consensus narrative and our own navigation between what you could consider two worlds, in a sense, two different worldviews, and how we navigate that. And of course, as you can probably imagine, I'm also struggling with that myself. Just to put, mm-hmm. put a very fine edge on that, about a month and a half ago, I actually signed up for a COVID vaccine, and my date for the first one is tomorrow. And I'm... <laughs> I'm still on the fence and I'm leaning against it. But the only reason why I'm at all leaning toward it is because of my father and his girlfriend. Because my father's 85 and she's in her 70s. And she's concerned. My father's not at all concerned about any of this because he has a perspective much more aligned with our perspectives and, and the sense of 
one's own personal responsibility and also the sense that health and you you mentioned the Taoist perspective of harmony in relation to the inevitabilities of death and also in relation to birth and you know the essential realities of birth and death and and in between our lives flow and the way our lives can flow within between the two are in some way directly related to how we relate to the different ways we can we can approach the concept or and how we feel about and think about birth and death and how we react to the way we think and feel about birth and death and especially death since most people in our culture are quote unquote deathly afraid of death <laughs> whereas I personally I'm not afraid of death I'm just afraid of suffering not death I am afraid of pain having a painful death or suffering and and suffering from you know a lack of quality of life while I'm alive and that death is an inevitable step in the process of perhaps a broader perspective than just life and death that that death is not a final destination on on the trajectory of experience whatever the range or spectrum of experience can be you know beyond mm -hmm. just birth and death or whether there's a kind of cyclical thing going on perhaps on like fractal levels in a sense that it isn't just a finite linear path between a birth and a death and that's it that's right my Taoist teacher used to say the only cause of death is birth <laughs> and what happens in between feels so important and you know it's not the whole picture and yet, I think you can relate to this because of your interest and experience in somatics. And this is kind of the thing I've come around to, both with cancer and COVID, is that we are also only having the embodied experience that we're having. And that, that matters as much as the bigger picture of how life is. It makes me think of this Buddhist concept that I often come back to and say to patients, this now, how do I relate to it? You know, it kind of clears the deck of all the philosophy and all of the, how did I get here and what do I do? This now, how do I want to relate to it? And, you know, back to what you were saying, I really understand your dilemma and the conundrum there. And believe me, I had a similar conundrum both with making choices about cancer treatment and how to think about that and how to carry that out. And then same with COVID and vaccination. And for me, it's been a challenge of holding the view that you just sort of rolled out and the reality of the situation we're actually in. And I mean, I have a lot to say about that, but I'm just gonna pause right there. Yeah, I, I definitely wanna hear about that but I just, I want to interject two things. First of all, Taoism was my first love. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you have an intimate understanding of it. Well, I have my own very unique, personal, intimate experience with it on, uh -huh. on different levels, from having the books of 
Chuang Tzu in particular literally come alive for me while I was in college during the times that I was doing psychedelics. <laughs> and then also having, because of that, having a subsequent experience on LSD where I had a direct experience with a group of ancient Chinese sages. Uh -huh. Where there was some unspoken communication or direct uh -huh. interface that happened when I was 18. And there were no words to any of it. There was just this presence, this direct visual presence with my eyes open, looking into the eyes of another person, which opened up a window into another universe, you could say, mm -hmm. in which I was having this experience. So mm -hmm. for some people, they might roll their eyes in their head and, and go, well, you were just on <laughs> drugs. <laughs> but uh <laughs> well i have something to say about that i had a not as dramatic but equally profound for me experience not on drugs <laughs> and i'll explain a little bit about it but i think the thread that i see between the two is this understanding that we are part of a street we are a stream right we're not an individual body we're actually part of what came before and what will come after and that's something that I'd say 95% of the world just takes to be a fundamental truth. It's why you go to so many other places, especially in Asia, and there's altars everywhere. And there's prayer happening all the time. You know, I have this awesome Burmese couple as my patients, and they come regularly, and we just, you know, I treat one of them, and then the other one, and I stay in the room, and we just talk the whole time, and... They're really interesting. They're engineers, and they work for American successful companies, and yet they're Burmese, and so they pray and meditate every day. And anyway, all this to say that there's this fundamental understanding among a lot of the world that we are part of a stream, and that actually is a lot more ordinary. It's, it's actually not woo-woo. It, it just means like you know, genetics in some respects. It's like the way that you hold your hand while you're driving is the same way that your grandpa did. I mean, you don't exist without him. But I also think what you're pointing to is what I came to with the experience that I'll tell, which is, oh, there's a bigger stream that we're part of. And in our daily life, if we're not tuned in, whether it's with psychedelics or meditation or whatnot, it's easy to miss. It's like, I, I often say this, it's like a fish swimming around asking what water is. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the experience I had, in short, is just that I had quit my job at Wired Magazine in my 20s because I just knew that I couldn't work in marketing at Wired Magazine anymore. And I wasn't sure what's next, but I, I had a feeling it had to do with grad school. It might have to do with health. And I was about to go volunteer in an orphanage in Burma for like six weeks, just kind of as a way to reset and give back to the world and kind of take a minute to think about what's next. And then 9-11 happened. And my family was like, please do not go abroad right now. <laughs> and right around that time, I had this incredibly vivid dream that I was in a field and this small Asian-looking man 
was there and he turned to me and he put out his hand and he said, come with me, it's time, we're going. And I took his hand and it was this golden, warm, beautiful feeling. And it struck me so much that I sketched a very detailed picture of his face. And I kept it and then kind of forgot about it. And a year later, I was taking prerequisite science classes for Chinese medicine school. So fast forward 15 or so years, I'm in Vermont, and I signed up for this class with this teacher, Jeffrey Yuen, who I had heard a lot about. He's allegedly an 88th generation Taoist priest, but he's also a master of Chinese medicine. And so Anytime you get a chance to take his class, you should, is what I was told. And he was teaching geriatrics, and I was like, sure, I'll take it. So I show up at the auditorium at UVM, and I'm early, and I'm standing at the top of the auditorium, and he's at the bottom. And the minute that I saw him, I remembered that sketch. And I thought, oh, this is silly. (laughs) You know, you're equating this person just because he's an Asian and he's a teacher and whatever. But it wouldn't leave me this feeling of like, oh, there's something here. And so I went back home and I dug that sketch out of a box and it is absolutely him. There's no question. So I told my mentor, Megan, at the time, and she said, oh, you have to, you have to contact him and see if you can apprentice or something. And I called one of his assistants and explained this situation to her, and she said, oh, this happens all the time. It happens so often that we're collecting these stories for a book. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there were two incredible lessons in there for me. One was that this is incredibly ordinary (laughs) to be part of a stream. It's just how it is. And then the other lesson for me was, oh, this thing about time that we both alluded to at the beginning, it really felt like, oh, Jeffrey came back in time to grab me and say, okay, you are part of a lineage now. You don't have to worry. And I often, when I'm in the treatment room and I'm going through my Rolodex of points and herbs and I'm trying to figure out the pulses and what's the right treatment, I lean back into that. Oh, I'm part of a lineage. Like, let that come forward and that helps. And, you know, much to what you said, people can think about that as woo-woo, and I'm hesitant to talk about that much because I have such an obligation to take Chinese medicine, you know, kind of like out of the hippie realm and into the scientific realm, and yet this is the way of things, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> this yeah. is actually how life is. Yep. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I'm just going to finish up my story, because um, they're very close parallels. Throughout my life, I've had a very strong sense that I was part of a very similar kind of stream. I had a very strong visceral sense that that Taoist tradition was a very integral part of my ongoing evolution well beyond this life. And a year later, I had moved out to San Diego to a spiritual community and sort of connected to our community was another community with an old Taoist priest. And I think he actually was from the Shaolin tradition. And I started studying the Taoist energy healing and doing the foundational 
chi generation exercises, mm-hmm. but I chose not to engage in the martial arts aspect of it because I felt like I had already done that <laughs> and that that was not my path in this life. So that's that part of my story. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And I just love when you contacted those people. They said, oh, yeah, this happens all the time. And yeah, this kind of stuff, it does happen all the time. It is an integral part of this world that we live in. It's just that we happen to live in a very material, three-dimensional, hyper-rational culture that doesn't create or allow the space to include anything outside of that narrow, three-dimensional box. That's right. And so how do we hold that and still make this plethora of (laughs) ordinary and practical decisions that we need to make every day and and realizing that all of that is no less important and it's not void of chi like that is what chi is chi is just describing relationship or i always say chi is a way of naming stuff moving through time and how do we know that's true things change and also you could say that chi is life itself in right. mo- in motion that's right. The verb aspect of life itself. And, of course, in this culture, science and medicine loves to dissect and kill things so that they are still and they can study them because it's so difficult to study anything that's alive and moving through time. That's right. But without movement, we don't have life. Exactly. And if you're studying death, you won't learn anything about life where you'll learn a very limited aspect of life. (laughs) So yeah, energy is life. Life is energy. And it's all very, very fluid. And we are such a rigid culture, so unfluid. So in a sense, there's an aspect of death in our culture. Mm, That's so interesting, yeah. It's like we kill life, in a sense, in our culture. And we wonder why we're so f***ed up and literally creating death all around us. In Chinese medicine, we think of everything as fundamentally coming down to a balance of yin and yang. And that avoidance of yin leads to an excess yang, which actually creates too much yin. So yin and yang are descriptors of the interchanging of qi movement. So night turns into day, turns back into night. That's yin and yang. Or matter versus motion and mechanism. Yin being matter, yang being motion and mechanism. So similarly, death is yin, life is yang. So in this obsession to avoid yin at all costs, we become excessive yang. And what is excessive yang? It's cancer. It's COVID. It's too much motion not enough material. So we're doing, 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 but we're not asking, where is the doing coming from? That matters too. Or, you know, like my teacher would say, you think sleep doesn't matter. You think productivity is the only thing that matters. But sleeping is a way of practicing for death. So if you practice your whole life and you get good sleep, your death is going to go a lot better. And of course, like as Westerners, we'd be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) 
But I guess, you know, the take home of that is it's not that yin is more important than yang. It's just that in the Western world over the last, I don't know, a couple thousand years, we've emphasized yang at all costs. And as a result, we are sick with yin deficiency. Now, the other interesting thing about that, again, I keep coming back to this thing of this now, how to relate to it. You know, with my own personal journey with cancer, it's like knowing all of this and knowing that the treatments are all yang. They're all heroic, save my life. From a philosophical point of view, it didn't make any sense to do them. And yet, I was a 40, I don't know, two-year-old woman with a lot of life left that I felt like I wasn't done with. And the practical reality was, okay, these treatments, you know, chemo, radiation, lumpectomy, you know, they joke, they call these things poison, cut, and burn, right? There will be a time in the near future where we will look back and say these are barbaric. And yet, that's what we have right now. If I didn't do those things, who knows if I'd be alive right now? Or what kind of suffering would ensue? And I'm with you. I felt, I have always felt less afraid of death and more afraid of suffering. And yet I also have a desire to live. I'm not all yin. I do have yang. (laughs) And so all that to say, I chose all those treatments. I also chose a bunch of alternative support. And I think I was very lucky in a lot of ways to both already have the strength and capacity that I had due to taking good care of myself and having some understandings of how to do that over a couple decades. And also to have the knowledge and the tools of alternative medicine to support that. But it kind of felt like a yes and process of, okay, I'm going to gather all the resources I can and be engaged and interested in meeting the situation I'm in right now with everything I can also with this bigger perspective of not being overly attached to my own life. And, and the way that manifested was, you know, when I first got a cancer diagnosis, I felt shocked and I felt, me, me, <laughs> I'm the healthiest person I know and there's none in my family and why me? And my mentor said, why not you? You are not exempt from the human experience. And, you know, what I often say to my patients, who are shocked by a cancer diagnosis is, you know, trees get this and dogs get this and horses get this. It's very ordinary and it's not necessarily a problem. Now, am I going to take that all the way to like, therefore, it's fine if I die. (laughs) I'm not quite there yet because I'm not a Dallas priest. I'm a person who wants to continue living and taking care of people and having conversations like this. (laughs) And yet, Is it possible to hold all of this while we make these really difficult decisions, whether to get chemotherapy or not, whether to get a vaccine or not? It's harder to be a thinking person, Tonio. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm really curious how this translates into your perspective and approach to the COVID issue that we have. Yeah. And what you share with your patients because they probably have a range of their own leanings or 
choices or ways of thinking about it that you have to work within with them oh absolutely i think what you said about rigidity is has been an important application for how i navigate all of this and how that swung one way and then the other when the pandemic first started i was really interested in thinkers like tom cowan and how they were talking about what interested me the most was this talk about how the basic virology wasn't adding up and then i tried to think about that and talk about that with people in new england and i was shut down immediately and it was a really interesting cultural experience because i was able to have these conversations with friends and practitioners and teachers in the west in california specifically and you know that's a whole cultural thing that's interesting right i think we're still in this place and in this time in new england where witches were burned and there's a real threat anytime you bring up something that doesn't feel very mainstream science and yet i also started to realize that tom's perspective and other people like him started to feel rigid in another way mm-hmm. too rigid for me and mm-hmm. that you know there is a lot of validity and reality to the going narrative this is a problematic virus we do have 600,000 people dead in america and i had some interesting discussions with some more fluid <laughs> friends particularly a doctor friend in berkeley who sent me some information from a lot of the functional medicine doctors and most of my practitioner friends and colleagues ended up getting the vaccine in California. I'm sort of leaving New England out of this because there's such a rigidity of like we don't even question this we just do it that you know there's kind of nothing to talk about there. <laughs> But in this other realm what i appreciated was the conversation we had was wow it's so hard to know there's a lot of different perspectives in research in every direction and at the end of the day you kind of have to find what makes sense to you and that's not an easy thing these days and in terms of my patients the last few months is when it really started to open up in terms of conversation before that i felt like there was no conversation available and i kind of assumed everyone was on this rigidity of like of course i'm getting the vaccine you better get it and i actually felt concerned if i don't get it that'll be detrimental to my practice if word gets out that i'm an unvaccinated practitioner that's going to be a problem and that was hard to grapple with and yet in the last few months i don't know if it was you know the change to a new year or what i mean i there's a lot of factors to that i've had a lot of patients express uncertainty and worry and concern and not sure what to do and the best way i've been able to support them is to say you know i think that we could find research and evidence either way until the cows come home <laughs> but at the end of the day is kind of have to do what makes the most sense for you and you know back to your point i think for some of us that's really hard to find for me personally it has also been hard for me to get on board i could have gotten it a long time ago cuz i'm a healthcare practitioner and i kept putting it off and putting it off and 
I think there's two things that have, well, there's a few things that have gotten me to feel like I'm on board and I'm signed up to go get my first shot next week. One is that back to this thing about not being exempt. I think there actually is value in joining up with what's going on collectively. And this is kind of a, (laughs) as someone that's always lived outside the norm, it's like really ironic to be saying this, but I don't want to live in opposition. That doesn't feel conducive to healing as a practitioner. And I think if I were, you know, I have a group of friends in Montpelier and none of them are going to get it because of all of the reasons that it doesn't make sense to them. Essentially, you know, I agree with this too. What's been said is I don't really want to be part of the first wave of the largest clinical trial in history. (laughs) But they are all living in a bubble, working from home. And so that makes sense. And similarly, I saw my very respected Chinese herbalist, Dr. Wang, in southern Vermont recently. And I said, do you think I should get the vaccine? And he said, not important. (laughs) (laughs) And I was talking to some friends about it. I said, oh, he said that it doesn't matter. And they said, no, he didn't say that it doesn't matter. He said that it's not important, which is an interesting discernment. But what he went on to say is, if you're going to travel, get it. If you can stay home and stay, you know, in your bubble, you, you don't you don't need it. It's not necessary. It's a sociological thing more than a... That's right. More than anything else. Maybe, yeah. And, and that's what I came to is like, well, I don't live in a bubble. I'm a practitioner and I'm taking care of people. And I am going to go back to Iowa this summer and I'm going to see my nieces. And I don't think my brother would be interested in me doing that without being vaccinated. And... In the past, I would have held strong to my views or my values or my integrity. And I think what Taoism has taught me more than anything is that that isn't always the most important thing, even if I'm right. Right. It's not just about me. That's right. And, you know, I also think what helped me get on board was a couple other things in the world. One is that I did see a statistic that the vaccines are proving to be 90% effective in stopping the spread. That mattered to me. I thought, I don't need to do this if we don't even know if it's going to help. And then the other thing was watching what's happening in India and talking with my Burmese friends who, you know, everyone and their friends and family in Singapore, of course, lined up to get the vaccine. They wouldn't even question it. Now, never questioning anything, you know, okay, that's not a good way, but always questioning everything and thinking your opinion matters just as problematic. And I thought anyone in India would be so grateful right now to have a vaccine. They wouldn't think that their opinion or their research about it matters. You know, just do the thing and move on, (laughs) kind of, you know, and will I develop an autoimmune disease? Maybe. Will this not be effective and I'll be asked to get a booster shot in six or 12 months. And, you know, maybe. I think one important take home of all of this is, do we do things based on the outcome? Or do we do things based on our view and our integrity and what makes the most sense at the time? 
And that's so humbling, you know, that I learned that. I so learned that going through the cancer process. You do your best with what you know at the time, and you have no control over the rest of it. It's interesting how we have to accept and take responsibility for our place in time. That here we are, and this is what's available to us. This is where we are evolutionarily in terms of medicine, science, and our understanding of the world and the way to deal with these different conditions that we have to deal with. And as you're saying, we have to do the best we can with what we have. And this is what we have right now. That's right. And we have to accept that and make our best decision based on that. That's right. That's right. And, I, you know, again, I think so many things in my mind come back to yin and yang. I think there's a lot of people operating in our culture that, you know, aren't thinking the way that you and I are. They're more thinking you just do the thing and you don't reflect upon it. And that's like an excess of yang and not enough yin. So that's their work. I think people like you and me, maybe our work is like, okay, I have plenty of that yin thing. (laughs) How do I kind of join the yang? How do I join the world and still feel comfortable in that? You know, I remember um, one of my teachers used to say that my particular life path is about renouncing renunciation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, my leaning is always to pull away. And I think part of my life's thesis is like, how do I jump in and engage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, continually integrating everything, not rejecting anything. Like you mentioned earlier how you responded to Tom Cowan's perspective and his his position as being very rigid. And I had the same response, mm. even though I agreed with some of the things he was saying, the way he was holding on to it was just far too rigid for me. And the way you're talking about yin and yang to me is fascinating. And what occurred to me was that my sense of it is it's also very much related to, you know, the Buddhist concept of the wheel, the wheel of karma, that when mm-hmm. that when the balance of yin and yang are out of balance, it actually creates or it, it accelerates the cycle of imbalance and gets the wheel spinning faster and faster and more out of balance. And if we don't do something to deal with that, it could potentially spin so far out of balance as to create a fatal imbalance and lack of harmony. That's so interesting. And I think that that absolutely applies to cancer and COVID in that I was consulting a friend recently who just got a breast cancer diagnosis and Her questions were much of the ones I had initially, which are, how did this happen? Could I eat this or not eat that? Da-di-da. And, you know, you wouldn't believe the influx of people's opinions about, oh, just drink smoothies and you'll be okay. (laughs) And to your point about the wheel getting spinning too far, it's like, okay, but once we've gotten to cancer, we're not at the pebble, we're at the mountain. So an intervention for a pebble isn't going to work. We need a hammer. And we may wish that's different, but at the time I was grappling with all of this, I came across a study 
that showed that Vietnam veterans who had been exposed to DDT, the, the consequence of that to the epigenetics was that there was a higher rate of breast cancer in their offspring. My dad was a Vietnam vet, and it just leveled me to read that. It immediately drained out all of the anxiety I had about, could I have eaten this or could I have done that? And I think that's an example of, you know, that wheel got spinning decades and decades before, karmically even before I existed. And so there's no point in spending any time thinking about, like, well, could I have, should I have? It's like, at this moment, we need a hammer. Now, could we work in the future toward maybe not, like, <laughs> DDT or glyphosate or all these things? Yes, that would be great, but nothing I can do now and no reason to take that personally. Right, and also, you know, back in the days of DDT and the beginning with glyphosate and things like that, we didn't know the harmful consequences of those things. And it relates to how we we have to do the, the best we can with what we have. And that, of course, is my issue with these vaccines, that we know so little about this. This is That's right. an experimental treatment. At this point, it appears to have a very high efficacy rate. However, there's no long-term studies into the even the medium-term effects of this, let alone the right. long-term effects. And I reflect back on the history of science and medicine and how it seems as though we are continually discovering the folly of all of our best intentions, that all of these pharmaceutical and chemical inventions and creations, you know, with the intention of creating a better world, have eventually backfired. I think almost everything has backfired and created tremendous harm to human beings, to life in general, and to the planet. And to me, my concern is that these vaccines, particularly the MNRA vaccine, may just be another part of that same story. Well, and I think... The important seed here, you know, I've thought a lot about, well, why don't we trust doctors? Why don't we trust Fauci? Why don't we trust, people keep saying the science, the science. And I think, why don't I trust the science? Because the minute that profit became, you know, something to hold more important than making people better, you take the trust out of it for good reason. You know, I heard this thing on NPR about how, the development of the polio vaccine was delayed because the treatments for polio were so profitable. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that <laughs> has led so many, you know, it's, there's this going thing about, oh, can you believe everyone's questioning this and we won't reach herd immunity if everybody doesn't get vaccinated? It's like, well, yes, of course they're questioning. There's a reason that they're questioning. And yet, back to what I said about, well, we are in a world, you know, who knows why it's like this, but there's probably some factors like damage to the macro and the microbiome that have caused us to be able to invite epidemic disease in a way that is, I mean, similar to what it was before, though we would think, well, we wouldn't have this now because we have sanitation and we have all these supports, and yet 
okay, we we must be sick in some way if we're able to invite this at such a large scale and it's so problematic. And so at this point, I guess we do need a hammer. We do need a vaccine. And there may be a cost to that. But here's where we find ourselves, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> what do we do with that? We do the best we can with what we have once again. Yeah. And what we have is always limited. And yet, I would argue that we are incredibly equipped in a way that we forget all the time, you know. So I read these natal charts based on Chinese cosmology, cycles of time for people. And I'm always struck looking at their chart at what a beautiful and privileged birth we all have, you know. it's. I mean, I'm, I'm not rating charts for people who are in prison or are picking beans with two babies on their back, you know what I mean? And so we all have extraordinary lives and immense resources. And yet there's still so much of the collective that we don't control. And so I think, I think that can be confusing about how powerful and powerless we are in the modern world. That's an interesting dynamic and something that, that is endemic to life and especially individual life within the collective and within the the overall stream of life itself, that we, you know, the ego's nature is to think of itself as the supreme bubble within or the supreme drop within the ocean, and it itself is most important, and yet it's just a drop in the ocean that thinks it's more important than every other drop in the ocean and even more important than the ocean itself. That's right. And the individual choice and freedom is the most important thing. I mean, it's interesting to think about, I think about this all the time, that we make the assumption that that's what brings us fulfillment and happiness. And I think about my grandparents who had, my grandmother had so few choices compared to me, so much less freedom, so much assumed about her existence. And yet, I don't think that I am happier or more fulfilled than she was. I really don't. And that's an uncomfortable and profound thing to examine. <laughs> that's, that's such a fascinating paradox, how choice, in many ways, is the root of suffering. That's right. I mean, you know, the, the suffering I've had trying to make this decision, right, versus I watch my very smart, accomplished Burmese patients say, oh, it's time to sign up for the vaccine. Next. No question, no thought about it. And also your mentor saying that, you know, the decision, it's not important. And that means that it's not important either way. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And, And another mentor of mine when I was really grappling with whether to get chemo, she said, what are you afraid of? And I said, well, I'm afraid of dumping poison in my body. And she said, do you not understand your own enormous capacity and resilience? You can decide to relate to your resilience if you want. And I did. And truthfully, it just wasn't that bad. (laughs) And of course, there's a lot of factors there. I probably got a cocktail that isn't as hard as others. Again, I started out with a pretty strong constitution. I had all of these other supports. And yet, I don't know, that's the way I would like to go into getting vaccinated because 
as we're talking about, as we started this conversation, energy is the foundation for all of this, right? Matter only comes from energy. So if energetically we get 100% on board with something, I mean, it makes me think of one of my teachers saying his Nana in the UK lived to be 95 years old and the last 20 years of her life, she basically lived on biscuits and tea. (laughs) Meaning if you can extract all the tea you need from biscuits and tea, great. So if you can energetically get yourself completely on board with chemotherapy or a vaccine, you just decide. And I'm saying that as if it's easy, just decide. That's it's not that easy. <laughs> but maybe that's some of the work. Well, I think it boils down to if we can make the decision without an undue amount of stress. Yes. We make a decision that embodies a sense of fluidity, which is equivalent to a sense of harmony with the decision that we make, that we're, we're surrendering to our our understanding that we we only have a limited amount of control over the circumstances of our life and that it's really how we respond to the things. And if we can respond to the choice we make with the understanding of the limitation of our understanding and also the limitation of our individual self in relation to the collective self, then we can stay fluid within the dynamic tensions that are involved. And then the, uh, the balance of yin and yang, the spinning of the wheel, can relax into a much more harmonious and fluid flow in harmony with, with the natural flow of life itself. And then I suspect that no matter what decision we make, that the essential energy and intelligence of life itself will aid us and make the most out of whatever choice we make, just because we are making the deepest choice to remain in harmony with what is. That's right, just how things are right now. I think that is the definition of health, is not that we don't get sick. And it's not even necessarily that we don't suffer, but can we meet what is fully. I mean, I think as a result, we do suffer less (laughs) because we're going with instead of against. Right. And also going with the knowledge that we may not have any perfect choices, that we may have to make choices that are way less than ideal. And yet that's what, that's what is in this moment. And inevitably we have to make a choice, even if it's a choice not to make a choice, that's still a choice. (laughs) And, and, And it's it's all about how how at peace we are with that choice. Yes. Absolutely. Within ourselves. Yeah. Within ourselves. Yeah. yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I mean a, a great sort of counter story to my story with cancer is my Taoist teacher who you know, he was in his mid to late sixties and we would have thought perfectly healthy on every single level. And he suddenly found out that he had cancer that at that point when he found out was kind of everywhere. And he just said, oh, well, though I'm surprised, I really never thought that I was immortal. (laughs) And he was very clear that, you know, he wasn't going to take any treatments. It's just like, okay, now's the time. 
and he did take morphine and you know he died pretty quickly i think within about six weeks at home completely at peace you know one of his nurses was tearing up and he said to her oh it's okay honey everything dies you know and I could imagine, you know, I wasn't at that point where I was, but I could imagine in his situation, complete acceptance. Okay, let's see what's next. Exactly. It's like our own individual personal relationship with and desire for life and more life experience is such a key factor in the way we respond to death. Yes. And somebody who has already lived a full life and feels good about their life and doesn't have a backlog of regrets that they feel compelled to rectify, can accept death with at least some degree of equanimity, whereas somebody who either has a lot of baggage mm -hmm. to unravel before they die or feels that compulsion will have a very hard time accepting death, or somebody who's young and still has a, a great hungering for life. Although there, there are lots of children, lots of young people whose stories I've heard who very quickly accept that it's their time to go, and, and they are mm -hmm. so at peace with it, and they, they tell their parents, oh, this is my time to go. Mm, wow. With no apparent struggle at all to understand wow. or because they, they seem to be free of, of society's conditioning around death. And they, the over-solidity of life, right? Yeah, right. The, yeah, Kids the, aren't overly solid yet. Right, and, and being attached to life. And it seems as though these children have this deep sense that life and death are not the be-all, end-all of everything, right. that they seem to be very much in touch with a much broader perspective of what is. And for us in this world, in this culture, it's so hard, or it's, it's impossible to define what is, because we don't even know what is. There's no language, and there's even a very limited experience of what is, because even when we have experiences beyond this world, it's still almost impossible to put it into any kind of language, mm -hmm. even to make sense of it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And over and over, we hear stories when people have near-death experiences that there's an expansion that helps them understand, oh, my life wasn't the whole thing. It's not really a problem. <laughs> right. And, and the people who have had those experiences, and I've interviewed a few they all say that they are excited to die. In some cases, they just wish they could die. It's just that they have, they have more karmic attachments in this world and people that they need to stay here for. Mm -hmm. But that as soon as they get the opportunity or are allowed to die and move on, they will take it with glee. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But again, that's a, that's a different level of experience. And it's also a subjective level of experience and is not necessarily the same for everybody. That's right. And it's, it's a good thing to be attached to our life. I mean, it's interesting. I also had that experience where before cancer, I often struggled with depression and would have thoughts and feelings of like, this is all just too hard, meaning life. It's just too hard. And often like, it's not worth it. Like, I don't want to keep doing this. 
And since then, I don't get visited by those thoughts and feelings in the same way. It's almost like when faced with the choice of death, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Okay. I actually do want to do this life, but I, but I do want to do it differently. And not that I've had a ton of control over all that before, during, or after, but on some certain level, it shifted something in me that has helped me want life more, at least for now. And it's interesting collectively to think about COVID in that way. You know, we've seen a lot of shifts over the last year culturally, um, people really asking, okay, what is it about my life that actually matters? And being forced to slow down has been a great gift to so many people who could not and would not do it otherwise. And it's almost like that's the great rebalancing of, okay, we got too young, so this virus came and forced us to go more toward yin. I also think of yin and yang like it's the interplay that life is of chaos and order. Things fall apart, they come back together. That's the nature of how things work, right? Mm -hmm. And in a way, last year was no exception, both the virus and the way we had to approach it in terms of shutting down. It was a great reorganizing of our resources and our values. And so, okay, now how do we carry that forward until the next time it falls apart, right? (laughs) Right, right. And life is full of dynamic tension and stresses. And stress in itself and tension in itself is not a bad thing. It's actually a natural part of life. It's just when things get out of balance or we become attached to a particular side of the equation or to a particular outcome that it gets out of balance or becomes toxic in a sense. Right. Excessive on one side or the other. As I think you and I have talked about in previous conversations, a great example is this thing about the nervous system, right? Where we're supposed to have the sympathetic response. We're supposed to mount a response to running from a tiger. That's healthy and human and evolutionary. And in the modern world, the fact that our nervous system now mounts that five, six, seven times a day is pathological. Right. And as you well know, we could look at the nervous system as an embodiment of the principles of yin and yang. Absolutely. And that we cycle through them. And in the natural world, that happens very naturally. But in our culture, we are so conditioned by an over-prevalence of fear. And also, we're conditioned by greed in the sense of that we're, we're always trying to achieve more for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that creates just tremendous stress and dynamic tension that takes us way, way out of balance and way out of harmony with life or the natural flow of life. Right. We're being addicted to adrenaline. Well, that's the extreme. Because that's the extreme. But, the, right, right. but being addicted to having our way. Oh, yes, that too. (laughs) Being in control, believing that we determine the course of our lives as if Mm. our lives matter, are so important, are more important than anything else. It always seems to boil down to that. You know, being attached to our individual perspective, which is the ego's perspective, because we don't really exist out of the context of the whole. Well, and just how poignant to think about how it's really easy as sort of uh, 
spiritual and liberal folks to kind of be able to easily see that problem over on the other side. But we're doing the same thing if we're like, well, I'm just going to eat a pure diet and I'm not going to get the vaccine and me, 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 right? (laughs) Right. Our agenda for for taking those kind of actions, you know, it's very selfish. It's selfish. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Thinking I know better. (laughs) And that what I do for myself is more important than anything else, which also often boils down to claiming because we have the resources to do so, claiming more of certain things for ourselves and thereby denying others access to things, which is something that is just endemic in the Western world's relationship with the rest of the world. That's right. Staying out of the fray, like I had that realization thinking, okay, well, if I think I have this figured out that these RNA vaccines are going to change the human genome, I'm going to be like the only one standing over here, not a part of that. So <laughs> what's, what's that about? <laughs> right, <you know? laughs> right. I was, I was thinking the same things. And, and, you know, I was getting caught up in that same thing and then realizing, well, if I'm the only one standing by myself over here, and what difference does it make anyway? I'm in my 60s right. now. I'm going to die anyway. I'm not going to have children. I'm not <laughs> passing on any genomic lines Now they're about to approve these vaccines for children, and I'm much more concerned about that. Mm -hmm. That does concern me more than adults. But again, we have to make the best with what we have, and we're not in control of everything. In fact, we're in control of so little. In fact, we're only in control of how we respond to things for the most part. That's pretty much what it boils down to, doesn't it? Yeah, and often we don't have any good choices at all. And therefore, the only good choice we have is to make peace with the lack of good choices. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a really important thing to think about for our lives. Which is sort of like what Zen koans are based on. Right. <laughs> right, the fundamental paradox. Exactly. Which also includes the understanding, the deep visceral sense that there's no way out of it. There's no escape from it. And no heroics are necessary. You know, I think about this all the time. I see a lot of college-age kids and some younger kids when I'm lucky enough for their parents to understand how helpful Chinese medicine can be for them. And, you know, they're in trouble. We have made a mess of this world for them. They're all on SSRIs for... You know, they all have these psychiatric diagnoses, and I think their microbiome is messed up because of the soil and antibiotics and all the things. And just psychologically trying to grapple with the world and screen time and, you know, the socialization around social media and all of that, it's a mess. And I often, when they come in to see me, I think of my teacher saying, don't be a hero, don't save anyone. That's Western religiosity. Just help some of the people some of the time. I mean, the acupuncture and the herbs are great for them. They really help. But I do think the most important thing I do is just to make them feel like it's okay to be them and having whatever experience they're having and there's nothing wrong with them and there's nothing wrong with their life. And kind of modeling by how I treat them just what you're saying. We meet life and the limitations that it presents the best we can every day and just be really nice to ourselves (laughs) along the way. 
yeah, makes me think of how attached we are to heroic responses and that we have to succeed, we have to prevail. And that's such a, such a heroic response. And I don't think that that's possible in this world. It's just not but balanced. It's not balanced. I mean, we love heroic stories, and there's the classic hero's journey, but the classic hero's journey has nothing to do with the kind of Western Hollywood hero stories, really. It's the internal journey, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And the internal journey really is one of finding acceptance and balance and wisdom as opposed to conquering the outer world. It's actually saving yourself from your own aggression. Right, right. The way you define aggression, aggression can also be defined as imposing one's own will or agenda upon the world or trying to. That's right. And in our Western culture, that's kind of the essence of our our society. You know, the American dream and perpetual growth and material wealth and comfort. Mm Mm-hmm. Or heroically saving someone when that's not working. (laughs) Right, right. Not trying to create a world that serves everybody. Instead, saying, well, Mm. you can heroically contribute to save those who are disadvantaged, which is like the Republican Mm. approach to things. You know, charity. Give to those less fortunate out of choice, but don't take a an attitude and perspective that we're all equal and that we all deserve equal access and equal treatment and equal protection or equal opportunity. Well, I think it's a colonial approach, right? And it's what we've been steeped in for a long time now, and we're having to decolonize our way of thinking in that respect. Yep. That's the modern challenge that we're having these days. Mm. Yes decolonizing. And a new term that I just had a conversation with a couple people two days ago, a new term that arose in that conversation was decanonizing things. Ooh. Right? You know how... Interesting. How society is, is based on these canons, you know, the orthodox canons of the stories of reality or the stories of religion or the stories of science, the stories of Mm -hmm. medicine or the stories of any institutionalized way of thinking about, Mm -hmm. about anything. And so in a sense, that kind of decanonization is so similar. It's so tied in with decolonizing our way of thinking. Mm. It's just that the canons are the specific texts or concepts within the broader colonization or sense of colonization or movement of colonization. The stories that we learned and agree upon as just the way things are. Yep. It makes me think of, I often hear people say things like, you know, in the vein of survival of the fittest, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, humans are just apt to be this way or humans, you know, we default to this or that. And with my anthropology background, I often think, No, Western humans do that, but that's because we've been cultured to do that. I don't think that's fundamentally how humans are. I mean, yes, we've seen with non-human primates that there is war and there's aggression, but there's also altruism and there's also harmony. And there's different cultures, like in the primate world, there are the aggressive apes and there's the bonobos 
who are the opposite. Right, right, right. <laughs> different ways, different possibilities, different choices, in a sense. Right, and then the thing of like, of, let's hope that the great gift of our, as we would say in Buddhism, our privileged human birth, or our enormous capacity for consciousness is that sure we might have some aggressive tendencies but we also don't have to choose them we can do better right we can uh, question our old ways or our knee-jerk ways Mm -hmm. question the old stories question the old canons Mm -hmm. write a new story (laughs) write a new story exactly and that was the essence of the conversation we had a couple of days ago so this conversation will air a week following that one. Since, oh, great. In a sense, this conversation's reflecting on that, and listeners will be getting to hear this after that, so they'll get to reflect on that in a way. Oh, that's great. So we haven't talked about Chinese cosmology. Oh, you know, we actually did. <laughs> I mean, all those concepts, you know, about time and yin and yang. I mean, it's such a big subject, it might, you know, it might be worthy of another conversation some other time. Well, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, I think the way this went was great. Me too. I've enjoyed this immensely. Oh, me too, as always. (laughs) As always, yeah. And I so much look forward to another conversation with you, whatever we end up talking about. Oh, me too. Thanks, Tonio. You know, it's funny, I, having not done this in a while and with you or anyone and feeling like my brain's a little rusty. <laughs> I sort of thought, oh gosh, I just don't know if I'm going to have anything interesting to say. And then I remembered, oh, he's such a skilled interviewer. He just will know exactly how to pull it all out. And I was right. <laughs> well, actually, it's not that I'm a skilled interviewer and your brain is not rusty at all. It's just that we're having a conversation. We're just engaging directly yeah. with each other. That's, that's what's happening. And we both have this natural ability to connect. That's right. And a shared interest in a lot of different subjects, which is great. And that helps an awful lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And open-minded curiosity. Yes. Yeah. So it's so fun. I just love it. Thank you so much. It is so so much fun. And that's why I I love doing this. And I I feel so blessed that I get to do this every week. Yeah. So great. What a great thing to have in your life. It is. Although I have to say that not every conversation is as much fun as <laughs> as this one, but often, often they are. Well, you've probably figured out how to choose well. That helps. I am pretty good at choosing, though I'm not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and I have my off days as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've had interviews that were definitely awkward and uncomfortable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Again, it's it's really all about connecting, how well yeah. you connect with another person. And to me, that's what's most important is the connection. Yeah, but people can feel that connection and they probably appreciate it a lot. Yeah. So you are going for your vaccine tomorrow? Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, probably. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a tough choice. It's it's one of those damned if I do and damned if I don't choices. I know. I know. I really do. And when I'm not faced with an actual damned if I do and damned if I don't choice, I love that metaphor of seeing the conditions of life as a 
you know, a damned if I do and damned if I don't koan. Yeah. Because right. it, it really is an honest understanding of the circumstances of life at times. Yeah, it is. And it can also help us accept the inevitability of change and death. Yep, and that we we can't actually know how that's going to come, even if we're really trying so hard, <laughs> right? Right, and we also never know what the outcome will be of anything or of any choice that that's we right. make. Right, And it's not our business to know beforehand. All we can do is make the best choice with what we have. That's you know? all we can do. Yeah. You know, I had a funny little life jokester kind of thing where, you know, obviously poured over this for so long. And then I finally decided that the J&J made the most sense for me, right? And then the thing came out about blood clots. And then it came out that it was a one in a million chance. But I am on this drug tamoxifen that has a pretty high chance, 1.2% of blood clots. And so I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't get this one. So then I called and changed to Pfizer. And I just, as I was going through that process, I just, you know, had to laugh. Like, Every time I thought I had this figured out, I don't. And I'm going to give up on trying to figure it out. And I'm just going to have to either show up or not show up. (laughs) Yeah. How humbling to realize that our perspective is so, so incredibly limited. So humbling. Well, (laughs) it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thanks so much. My guest has been Brooke Moen. She's an acupuncturist practicing up in Burlington, right? That's right. How can people get in touch with you and how can they find out more about you and your work? And also talk more about the extent of your work and what you have to offer. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. I do practice acupuncture in Burlington. I also do a fair amount of telehealth, which primarily involves the prescription of Chinese herbal medicine and some aspects of counseling and food as medicine. And then I also do Chinese cosmology, which consists of doing some lectures and some teaching classes, but also I read people's individual natal charts and progression charts. And more can be found on my website, brookmullenacupuncture.com. And this summer, my site will be going through a whole change so that all of that information is more accessible to people. But right now my site does have some videos and some text that can, if people want to learn more about all of that. And give the website again. It's Brooke Moen Acupuncture, B-R-O-O-K-E-M-O-E-N Acupuncture.com. And we'll have more conversations about all of that stuff in the future. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. So thank you so much. Thank you for being you and for uh, being so much fun to talk with. Oh, likewise, Tonio. And be well. You too. <laughs> Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Thank you.